coming to the end of another day in our retreat and also nearing the last part of our retreat some people may be feeling of relief whoopee, that's great <laughs> and for another people maybe still trying to catch our first breath <laughs> get nervous, anxious but uh, However it is, <clears throat> however today has been, whether we feel it's been a difficult day, struggling, or a wonderful day, peaceful day, in each moment coming back to find that place where we can be at ease, be accepting, be at peace with how it is, however it is, how it's been, turning to that refrain of this is how it is and allowing a sense of spaciousness with that creating too much of a sense of self judging how it is or how it was today or how the retreat's going um, for a lot of us <clears throat> sometimes we come into retreats with um, very strong experiences from other retreats and it's inevitable that we are consciously or not project that <clears throat> onto our present experience and compare you know is this going well or not is it good or not is it as good as the last retreat um, and I think that's a natural tendency and maybe there's some benefit in that to discern to be able to discern what's valuable and what's not but it, it can also if it's not a if it's not a clear process of reflection it can also diminish our ability to just actually accept how it is and what's presented itself to us in the course of this retreat, in the course of the day, in a more spacious way, in a more allowing way, in a, in a way that perhaps even allows us to feel that there's a perfection in just what happens to manifest and reveal itself. Uh, I remember a friend of ours, a monk who uh, practiced uh, in Thailand and had a lot of problems with his knees in meditation, sitting in his cross-legged. In Thailand, of course, they don't have zafus and cushions, just the cement floor. And hours and hours of these endless sitting. In the end, this all resulted in, in having to have some knee operations in Bangkok and he was laying there after these operations with his legs all done up and feeling really miserable and Ajahn Chah came to visit him and he started to complain and started to say well you know it shouldn't be like this and Ajahn Chah leant over and he said well if it shouldn't be like this it wouldn't be like this <laughs> It's a hard one, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, it, does, <laughs> it does often mean that we need to encourage ourselves to reflect, well, this is how it is, and can we just open to that, whatever is offered, into the space of our awareness, the configurations, karmic configurations that appear for our, for our contemplation, for our growth, for our inquiry, our transformation. 
You know, sometimes that appears in gentle and loving and beautiful ways, uplifting ways, and other times it's stuff that comes along that's really very difficult, painful, unclear. Just being able to, however it is, keep training the heart to be able to be more spacious. Today we were <coughs> reflecting on this third noble truth, the truth that allows us to more enter more deeply into that uh, aspect of our being that's able to, to be bigger than what is, particularly if it's difficult, that can stretch, that can contain, that can encompass, that can reflect. Through that, knowing a place of a more peaceful abiding, being able to notice moments of peacefulness and moments of spaciousness, taking us more deeply into this great Brahma Vihara, this great radiant abiding of equanimity. The heart, when it's un impeded, when it's, when it's radiant, when it's unconstricted, manifests and radiates and resonates with this great sense of equanimity or peacefulness, serenity, an ability to be in a, at the depths of our being to see the perfection of things that are unfolding just how they are. In a way, the, the abode of, of Shiva, the that which is able to see the world of change, be with all the manifested realms of shifting and changing and seeing them as perfect, seeing them as appropriate, seeing them as karmically lawful. When we see from the sense of self, we we sort of cut pieces out that we feel are good and bad and and judge, judge it all. And that can be appropriate too, but this very spacious place takes this, this, this reflection on equanimity, peacefulness, perfection, can take us into the, into the, the view of, of uh, a very large view, the view of, of, of great cosmoses that arise and pass, great galaxies that arise and pass great uh, civilizations that arise and pass, all things that arise and pass from the breath to galaxies to planets to moments of feeling, moments of thinking. And rather than seeing them so much from the place of preference or like and dislike constriction, it's just this allowing things to, to unfold. with a sense that this too will pass, all things, whatever comes about, this reflection on equanimity is, this too will pass, and all that manifests, all that comes into being is following its own karmic nature. This reflection on equanimity that the Buddha encourages to reflect all things, all beings appear supported by their karma, born of their karma, related to their karma, abiding supported by karma. Allowing for this spacious abiding can, can give, it's a bit like going to the mountaintop, gives us a feeling of maybe some perspective, some freedom, some space. However, <coughs> we can't always stay 
on the mountaintop at some point, we have to also come back into the marketplace in the realm of relationship to make contact. So this Brahma Vihara, this great dwelling of the Brahma gods that we can touch into, this divine radiant heart unobstructed of equanimity, to be balanced with, with place where we balance those with our ability to, in this moment, as we intersect in the flow of time and space and form and change in our being, in our sensitivity, with the ability to feel and connect with the suffering around us. It is real enough. Maybe on, on the vaster planes of impermanence and emptiness, it has an illusory dreamlike quality or forms that as we interact in this moment, we can feel with our sensitivity that there is suffering. So this equanimity is always held in balance with uh, compassion, the ability to resonate and to feel and be sensitive to the forms within life that are constricted by suffering, the ability to have moments of seeing that side of life, catching that side of life where we can feel with, empathize with, resonate with the vulnerability of being. Sometimes children or animals, or you can see sometimes when we look with a certain eye and see that vulnerability, it can evoke a sense of, of protection or compassion or aging, beings that are aging or dying, the sense of poignancy, or just seeing how beings and how we get caught into states of pain and constriction. We just stay in realms of uh, emptiness and spaciousness, and we can sometimes become a bit indifferent. We just stay in feeling the suffering all the time, we can get very burnt out, very exhausted, very overwhelmed. So each of these, <coughs> you can, little by little, contemplate in a way that can bring them into balance, allow them to balance. A wonderful poem that both talks to this interconnectedness, this flow of change, how we share so much together, and then also touching into this flow, the moments where we intersect and where we resonate together. Where were you last year? Breathe deeply. Breathe deeply. The air filled my lungs, and then my blood received this grace by which I live a few moments more. My every cell replenished with every breath a part of me departs, and something new is put in place. The rice I ate yesterday, where is it now? In my muscle, in my bone, the juice we shared, where has it gone? in our arms and legs and all. Last month, the rice waved in the sunshine in other lands. 
in the low flood plains of the Mississippi or the Irrawaddy, and the fruit hung on trees in Cyprus, Sicily or Spain. And before that, before that their substance was in the soil, was in the air, was in the seas, waiting to be gathered up, waiting to soar up into the highest reaches of the sky, waiting to become rain. You and I are mostly water. Last month, most of each of us was in the ocean. We circulated together in the Atlantic or the Pacific, perhaps. We are mostly water, and that water was lifted by sunshine heat, by the impact of photons cascading down, beating upon the ocean's face. And every photon comes from the sun, from the belly of the star, You and I were stars last year. We chased each other in the turbulent heat of the sun. So who was it that lived in your house last year and where will you be next week? Who is your true friend and who is your foe? And where will you be next year? Breathe deeply. Breathe deeply. This air is me and this air is you. This air we share. I give my substance to you, and you yours to me. With each breath I am linked in a single orbit with the great forest. My outbreath is their food. Theirs fills my lungs. Last year I was a tree, and the tree was me. Each day we gather up substance and continue the task of endlessly remaking ourselves from one another. Each day we discard a portion and continue the cycle of endlessly returning ourselves to others. Day by day we change and become one another. The substance of the universe, stardust and all, passing through each of us and we through it. Breathe deeply. Breathe deeply. Poem by David Brazier. Illustrating this place where both change and interdependence and movement, equanimity with all of that, and also the sensitivity, the, the feeling, being able to feel that, that interconnectedness, bringing us a sense of, of warmth, compassion. In the Buddhist teaching, they talk about <coughs> what motivates our practice, what, what actually motivates, what begins us, what gets us going as we start to practice a path of awakening. And firstly, for many of us, uh, when we first start, first motivation is often feeling of personal fulfillment, needing something or wanting something that we feel we haven't got yet. Maybe a, a little more peacefulness or a little more calm, a little more happiness. Or if you look in the spiritual marketplace, it can be wealth or power, beauty, even eternal life I've seen advertised. <laughs> There's sort of enormous promises for the personal self that can get us going. And, and it's not that these are bad necessarily, or well, some of them may be a bit deluded, but however, they're not you know, altogether bad. I think personal uh, fulfillment and well-being has its place. But after a while, uh, we realize that you know, when we start to unpackage and uh, look more deeply into our beings, we notice there are, there are layers of, of constriction and suffering, and so our motivation can sometimes shift 
uh, into being willing to engage with, with dukkha or suffering, being willing to, or in psychological terms, with the shadow material to integrate that which is orphaned, wounded. And this, in a way, requires a deeper, a deeper level of motivation because we, at that point, we're not just looking for the highs or the pleasures or the moments of bliss or peace, power. We're, we're willing to actually enter into realms that are more difficult, more confusing, less clear, where we meet pain, where we meet suffering. Be sensitive to that for the sake of understanding, for the sake of engaging and, and opening and growing. So the, the most profound uh, motivation that's encouraged in practice is the motivation of the, the bodhicitta or the bodhisattva heart, the heart that's willing not only to seek personal fulfillment or personal salvation from suffering, but at a certain point realizes as we see through the limitation and in some sense the illusion of a personal self and begin to notice well at a a deeper level we're all part of a flow noticing that there's a greater field of suffering not only our own then the motivation arises of compassion or can be encouraged of compassion to practice not just for our own welfare but also for how that may affect and impact the world around us to we get clearer, maybe we can actually engage in the world around us from clearer spaces, helping others, supporting others, listening to others, being more willing to be with others and with our own suffering. Not out of getting lost in it, but being able to to use it to deepen our capacity to be human, to be in the human realm from a, a more compassionate patient, willing place, place of embracing. So when this motivation is cultivated more consciously, then there's, there's a lot of energy, can be a lot of energy there, a lot of sustaining power. This, uh, this is something that we can really contemplate, the, the bodhisattva heart, the heart that uh, is willing to be in touch that which is difficult and to let in, not just to be frightened of of suffering or pain, but to let it in, to be affected by it. Be affected by it so that we can learn from it and grow from it and soften with it, be tenderized by it even, and be so defended. One very lovely classical definition of the Bodhisattva (coughs) is spiritual warrior or spiritual being. The term originally referred to ascetics of various religious traditions and was eventually taken over by Buddhists and was extended not only to monks and nuns but to male and female householders devoting themselves to the awakening of enlightenment for others as well as for themselves. Mahasattva, a term that's connected with the notion of bodhisattva, means fearless. Normally, the Mahasattva is interpreted quite literally as great being. However, the term was first applied not to humans but to lions, and only later to those who had the courage of the king of beasts. 
Hence it was used to suggest the difficulties of facing those who set forth on the Bodhisattva path as well as to praise them for such aspiration. So the lion heart, the heart that has courage in the face of of suffering, has courage in the, the face of confusion, has courage in the face of fear and pain. This is the heart that uh, is encouraged in the meditative practice, that placing little by little the heart of ignorance and reactivity with moments of courage, moments of being willing to be more open to receive the field of discontent and suffering in the world around us. Sometimes if we don't feel it for ourselves, we can reflect on beings that have it and demonstrate it in their lives. And it can be quite encouraging for us. I was thinking of beings like um, Mr. Mandela, for example. Reading recently some accounts of his life and how when he was in prison, in prison for 27 years, as we know, Robin Ireland, pretty bleak experience, um, and how he, he used that experience to turn around something that was so difficult that I would imagine had moments of real darkness and rage in it and bleakness, how he used that tiny little cell, uh, eight by eight feet, I think actually even smaller, cell, quite dehumanized in that experience, how he managed to turn that around. And I was reading how he started to become interested in his captors and his so-called enemies. So he decided he wanted to really understand who had put him in prison and, and what their and what their most where they were coming from, what their fears were, what their hopes were, what their aspirations were, instead of just hating hating his enemies. And so he started to learn Afrikaans. Decided he was going to learn Afrikaans. Not only that, he he decided he was going to read all their literature and started to order poetry and books written by Afrikaans writers and would sit there and begin to really understand and make contact. And of course, as we know, that ability that he had to do that when he came out of prison was, in many ways, was an enormous ingredient in allowing South Africa the, the incredible transition and miraculous transition that took place, still taking place, from a pretty much a fascist regime into what potentially, we don't know what it's potentially going to be, but at least a more open and freer society. One man, one man had an enormous impact that we can feel, well, what can I do? I, I'm just a sort of speck of you know, worthless human being, <laughs> depressed and not very you know, able. And you see one man put in the most awful circumstance. People tried a few times to kill him and was able to, you know, just through the power of, of really reflecting beyond the normal reactivity of shutting down, blaming, creating a strong sense of other and enemy, able to, uh, to bring enormous impact. No doubt many of the commentators that on of South Africa, many of them attribute the process of the transition a lot to, to Mandela. 
many other contributing factors, people themselves and their enormous ability to, to forgive. When you look at some of the... Uh, the South Africa went through a period of truth and reconciliation. These uh, would meet in small village halls and community centres and have a chance for victims and perpetrators of crimes to come together and just talk about, to confess, to open up what, what, was, what happened in those years. And some people quite cynical or critical, feeling that perhaps just punishment wasn't delivered where it was needed. But there were some amazing stories that came out of that process of people that were divided by hatred, people that had committed the most heinous crimes and suffered the most heinous crimes, able to meet and talk about as human beings and find in, a, in the midst of that some humanity, some connecting place. Acknowledge that there's been this enormous power of fear and ignorance that has moved people like you and me into the most impossible situations. We have one woman who's, uh, there was one, one of the uh, foot soldiers of the architects of apartheid who was uh, <coughs> who was one of the uh, squads that would go out and, as they say in South Africa, take people out. I don't know if they say that here. Taken out euphemism for, for murder and torture and all sorts of unspeakable acts. This guy was responsible for enormous, amount, enormous amounts of pain and suffering and death, thinking he was doing the right thing. A woman who was, uh, whose father had been killed as a result of this man's actions decided that you know, she couldn't come to peace with her, that she needed to, to meet this person. He actually got imprisoned. I was expecting to meet this demon, you know, had braced herself, come into the cell to meet a demon. When she walked in, this man stood up, quite humbly came over to her, took her hand, and looked really distraught, pained. It immediately that it was impossible to hold this projection of a demon, and as she started to, she visited him quite a few times, she started to realize that been caught up in this horrendous myth, perpetuated these crimes, and that, you know, through this contact, little by little, began to you know, touch that which was human. These are quite, these are quite hard journeys that all of us have to go through such extremes come to those places, but what was, what's inspiring to me is that in the human realm with so much pain and, and suffering, constriction, ignorance, that there can be these heroic, line-like stories of people that um, meet that. And not just, you know, big stories in small ways. Small ways, our friends, sometimes ways of taking on and meeting difficult situations and working with and trying to find that which is human, which connects us, which keeps hope in the human heart. Without that, it really does become very bleak. You know, compassion, we live in a realm of asuras competing with each other and getting to the top of the pile, no heart. So this, <coughs> this is uh, cultivate, we can cultivate 
by allowing ourselves to really maybe contemplate this, this theme. And even if we don't feel we have compassion, I remember Kisara telling a story, a powerful story of uh, going to visit a man in prison here in England when he was a prison chaplain. A man had, uh, when he was in a state of rage, had, had killed someone. Murder. Pretty heavy thing. And uh, okay, so I went in and uh, as, a, as a Buddhist monk at that time and wanted to have a meditation meeting. Sitting around in a circle and, and he decided to talk about metta, kindness, compassion. And this man got very upset, got very angry and said, I haven't got any compassion. If I had a chance, I'd break that bastard's neck again. The guy had gone off, his murder had gone off with his wife. Enormous anger. Great for one's meditation circle. <laughs> <laughs> so, I just said, well, well, can you have kindness for that feeling? I don't have any compassion. Can you actually face around that? Can you, can you soften around that? The man that was that was a, a moment of opening. He he had a meltdown. He was able to to, to cry, to soften, and realise how he hadn't allowed himself to feel compassion for the feeling. I haven't got any compassion. I'm isolated. I'm alienated. I'm enraged. So the Buddha often started with where we need to start with ourselves. And we have moments of warmth, moments of receiving, moments of friendliness to our own being, to the feeling, I haven't got any compassion, I, I don't love anyone. Each of these four noble truths has a corresponding aspect. The great vows of the Bodhisattva, the word vow, it means that in a way to set one's compass or to align oneself with a, a direction in life rather than being washed around by just you know the fancy of the moment or the impulse of the moment to be able to have a deeper sense of direction so the, the notion of the bodhisattva as, as it's cultivated as natural practice in a meditative way is is to actually contemplate Bodhisattva vows a sense of direction. The first truth of there is suffering translates into all beings suffer. Not only my suffering, my struggle that I'm working with, but all beings suffer. I vow, I aspire to support them all, or to liberate them all, to help them all. The second vow is uh, connected with the second truth. The second truth is that there are causes which we've been contemplating. And the second great vow of the Bodhisattva afflictions, that which obstruct and constrict us, are endless. They're everywhere we look. Uh, I vow, I aspire not to be frightened by them, not to be overwhelmed by them, not to be caught up in them, but I vow to meet them, to transform them to the best of my ability. I vow to transform them all. The third 
great vow of the Bodhisattvas connected with the third truth. There is an ending of suffering. The third great vow is the Buddha's path is unsurpassed. The Buddha's awakening is unsurpassed. I vow to realize it. Not only moments of peace or moments of spaciousness, but to fully grow into Samasambhuta. Maybe it seems a bit of a far-off notion, little old me sitting on my zaffoes, struggling with my you know, desires and fears and anxieties, little old me, Samasambhuta, you know, it's a crazy notion. But one can just set one's compass, little by little, to grow into our full potential, you know, to, to, to hold that as an archetype in, in a very light way, as a, as a guiding star. And the last great vow connects with the fourth truth, the path that needs to be cultivated. The last vow is that Dharma doors are endless. There are many, many different ways that we can enter the Dharma. I vow, I aspire to enter them all, or to cultivate them all, not to be, you know, to have an open mind. As, as Rumi said, there are many ways to kneel and touch the ground, kiss the ground. There are so many ways to enter into our true nature through friendship, through meditation, through singing, through dancing, through our work, through our love, through our being in this world and all the different ways that we are, all the different practices we can cultivate. I aspire to keep an open mind to cultivate them all. So these, these great vows are not taken from the position of the ego so much, me, me doing this, because that's, that's going to be quite uh, intimidating. I when I, I first heard these vows and I was practicing and uh, taken to some teachings by a friend of mine who was a Tibetan nun uh, to, to hear His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, and of course before His Holiness gives teachings, they often take the Bodhisattva vow, and uh, he encouraged the whole hall to take these vows, I had this you know, cold sweat, oh my God, what have I done, I just vowed to stay here for the next 10 zillion eons, <laughs> so a real attack of nervous fear came over me, and uh, you know, it's very hard to just stay with you know, my mate for a few hours, never mind to be with all beings and rescue them from suffering. I couldn't even rescue myself from a little difficult mood. So it did feel rather overwhelming. And I remember going to talk to my teacher, Jen Tomato, about this uh, rather rash move that I'd made <laughs> in a moment of inspiration and see was there some kind of way I could undo this or <laughs> get out of this. Because I was definitely of the school, the meditators of, you know, up and out of this realm as quick as possible. And that was my approach. And, uh, <coughs> and uh, he, <laughs> it's not that, that, that I'm completely free from that view, <laughs> the up and out view, but Ajahn um, Tomato said, well, you know, you can just see it as an encouragement to just be a bit more patient. <laughs> just to be willing, you know, just to be a bit more willing to be with how it is in this moment. That's, that's a very good way of approaching the Bodhisattva heart. And I thought, well, that, that sounds, I can't always necessarily do that, but it does sound 
it does sound doable. It does sound that I could have moments of stretching and meeting this being, the being that manifests here and now, the, the worry or the fear or the anxiety or someone that comes and is upset or, you know, a friend that phones and talks something over or my own, ang- my own feelings of inadequacy. I can, those are all beings or shapes or forms. I can, I can vow, I can aspire to meet them more fully, to be more spaciously, and when I don't, and constrict, and get irritated and overwhelmed, I can, I can then be more compassionate to my own limitations. So rather than necessarily seeing these great vows as something through the next few billion eons, as from an ego sense, just to see them as encouragement to develop this lion's heart, moment by moment, stretching a little bit more, to grow into the courage that we already have, just need to embody it more, to feel it more in our being, to express it more. <coughs> and then this Brahma Vihara of compassion, the heart that's open, unobstructed, touching suffering, feels, resonates with that side of life evokes compassion but when that gets too intense or too heavy some, sometimes some of us will work with a lot of suffering and work that, where we meet a lot of suffering then it's important to remember the balancing Brahma Vihara to that which is joy that which can uplift the four great Brahma Viharas equanimity, compassion, joy loving kindness, metta or balance and work and intertwine together. You know, sometimes when we are constricted and overwhelmed and to be able to notice that which is light and which, which is beautiful, creative, life, which has humor. And the senses aren't too jaded to be able to enjoy that which is uplifting, the beauty. For many of us, <coughs> classically, mudita is more talking about being able to wish for the welfare of others, um, that their benefits may increase. It's, a, it's classically taught as an antidote to jealousy and competitiveness, which we so often have, comparing ourselves, are they better than me, or, you know, and getting, feeling, you know, that, that uncomfortable feeling we have when we do that. And then when someone is better, or and does something or, 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 or does well, we can feel like something wants to pull them down a bit. <laughs> and so it's classically the contemplation of joy or mudita to, to may, may people, may beings not be parted from their good, good fortune and may increase. But often that's, that's quite an involved emotion in the human realm. It's quite, the human realm is a very competitive one often, especially in our contemporary context. We're not really that encouraged to wish that people get more strong, more bright, more beautiful, more radiant, more... Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes where we can feel moments of joy is one way, and is for many of us, is through our relationship to the natural world. Nature. We don't tend to get jealous of a beautiful tree or a beautiful sunset or competitive with a... A, a lovely uh, flower. 
just opening and radiant and beautiful. We can sometimes see something in nature that really allows us to feel that uplift, that resonance with that, which is truly miraculous and beautiful. So if we do, if we are in situations that, that where there's a lot of suffering, we're working with people that have heaviness, difficulty, that we might need to look in our lives, how can we bring that element of joy, of uplift, of creativity, of beauty, humor, lightness, to help balance? So it's not just all dukkha man, all suffering. And in the last great Brahma Vihara of kindliness, which is similar to compassion, but it's it's, uh, it, it's not necessarily resonating with suffering, but it's just the softening of the heart. It's finding ways of connecting with others in, in, in ways that are looking for how we can support or be friends or be kind. Wishing for their welfare. And extending that or even beginning that with ourselves again, wishing for our own welfare. So often we have very um, dismissive relationships with our own beings, with our, own, our own body, our own minds, our own hearts. Incredibly critical and judgmental, often negative, can be about ourselves. And so having in our practice moments of just being able to say, may this being be well, may I be well, may I be at ease. That much, breathing in, trying not to, to breathe without feeling that thought, may this mo- in this moment, may I be at ease, may I be well, with how it is. Driving in the car, going to work, having contact, walking into the office or into the space where we work. When we walk in, sometimes we can feel that constriction of self, self-consciousness, anxiety, social anxiety. What are they going to think of me? Is someone judging me? And cultivating, can we walk into a space? May all these beings here, may they be well. And you see, when you think like that, it kind of takes that, it, kind of, it gets a sense more of we're all here together. Oh God, I'm, I'm going to be charged or I've got to defend myself. And in fact, the Buddha originally taught it not only as a skillful means to develop the heart, but as a protection. When he first taught it, he taught it to monks that were meditating out alone in, in, in forests and jungles where there were spirits and dangerous animals. Of course, in that worldview of the time of the Buddha, there was a great sense of <coughs> entities that could harm Spirit, spirit world, and he, these disciples got very frightened. They got overwhelmed by fear and came rushing back. Buddha said, "Well, well, how did your meditation go?" And they said, "Well, not too well." We got frightened, and so we said, "Well, did you begin your meditation by sending out a vibration of harmlessness, non-contention, metta, kindliness to all the beings, seen and unseen, around you?" No, no, I didn't think of that. Well, well, <laughs> it's a good way to start. It's a good way to start. Uh, protective. Lessening the karma of a, a well-developed mind in metta and loving-kindness lessens the tendency to attract violence. 
You attract aversion. You attract uh, kindness from others. It's a protective kindness from the unseen, protection from the unseen being. The Buddha said that the benefits of metta is to be protected by unseen beings, to be loved by by those that we share this realm with. Eat more peacefully, to wake more peacefully, to be free from nightmare. Going to sleep at night. Very strange realms, the dream realms. Just spending a few moments before we fall into sleep consciousness. May may this being be well. May I be well. May I be well. May I be well. Really feeling that moment. Really being able to feel that well-wishing, that warmth, that kindliness towards our own being. We wake up maybe a little fevered, a little anxious. May I be well. Just breathing with that, studying the mind, that contemplation. May others be well. May everyone here, Guy House, be well. This is just a way of reflecting on this kindliness. And we might not have jungles that we go and meditate in, but negotiating cities and places where you know there can be a vibration of harshness, hardening of heart. In, uh, in our, then just being able to have moments of rather than constricting and getting caught up in that fearful energy that's so pre- prevalent, having moments of well-wishing, kindliness can help just dilute and, and transform that tendency to constrict. And the Buddha said that these great Brahma Viharas, when the heart, it's not that when the heart, when we, we talk about emptying of self, it's not that one's emptying into becoming a, a sort of dead doorpost somehow, unresponsive. It's really the appropriate response, the heart unconstricted, finds the appropriate response. Then Charles, a, a lovely way of speaking about this, he said it's like a bell, it's like the, the heart's like a bell, uh, an empty bell. And you can feel like, well, if I, if I empty, if I stay empty, then there's nothing, nothing's going to happen. We can be frightened that we won't know, you know what to do. We've got to think about what to do. We've got to make a strategy in life. We've got to be filled up with things. And so we get anxious and we think, well, you know, I better, well, I've definitely got to put my glasses because I get very vulnerable when I can't read. And then I get worried about time, what's going to happen. So I better keep hold of my clock. And then, you know, I've got all these papers here. I don't know if I'm going to remember what I want to say. So stuck that in so, just in case I get a bit thirsty. And so we walk around and we say, like, okay, I'm prepared now, I'm ready. I'm ready for contact. You know, we've got our armour on and our strategies are in place. And, and of course, someone comes up to, to say something or speak. And <laughs> and so it takes some trust to say, well, maybe I can just, you know, maybe we don't throw it all out at one go, but maybe say, well, it is a bit heavy, isn't it? Holding this, maybe just okay, take that out. Okay, 
hold my I can't quite let go of my paper but I'll just hold them a bit more lightly and we won't worry about the time I know it's bedtime but we'll get there soon enough and I will be able to read my quote from Master Hua and so it seems contrary to our natural instinct to hold everything together to actually have those moments of relaxing opening, emptying, letting go trusting that the heart will find the appropriate response when it's in contact. When it's in contact with suffering, that the heart, left to its own natural way, will resonate and find a compassionate way of being when it's in touch with the great flow of life meets that with equanimity when it's in touch with all beings with kindliness and when it's in touch with that which is radiant, beautiful, able to feel joy, uplift. Master Wa put it like this. All living beings are my family. The universe is my body. All of space is my university. My name is empty and formless. Kindness, compassion, joy and giving are my function. All living beings are my family. The universe is my body. All of space is my university. My name is empty and formless. Kindness, compassion, joy and giving are my functions. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.